0: Today, I am joined by Dr. Norm Vaughn. Norm is a professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Canada. He teaches graduate and undergraduate courses in education technology and K-12 education. He is the co-founder of the Blended Online Design Network, or BOLD, a member of the Community of Inquiry Research Group, and on the editorial boards of multiple peer-reviewed journals. He has conducted extensive research on blended learning, much of which is grounded in the community of inquiry framework, which will be a focus of today's conversation. I'm excited to have Norm on the podcast to discuss his knowledge of this framework, as well as blended learning, as educators in the U.S. and Canada, as well as many other countries throughout the world have been thrust into this new pedagogical world, and there is still much to learn. Dr. Vaughn, welcome to Fishing for Problems.
1: Matt, it's a real privilege to have you, and, and Matt, I will attempt to stay focused. Um, you asked the question, if I start going too far off, just, just bring me back. I, I Again,
0: Matt, during this
1: time, it's just wonderful
0: to talk to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, before getting into blended learning and the community of inquiry framework, can you tell us a bit about your background, your research interests, and your role in teacher ed?
1: Matt, and I'll try to keep it short, but I think like a lot of us, you know, it's fascinating how um, different things have influenced us. So just to be clear, my original background is I'm a geologist and uh, um, early on, I worked for both Esso in Canada, but also Exxon in the States. Uh, I'll be honest, my primary area was an area that's a little controversial right now. You just stopped our pipeline, um, was working in what we call the oil sands. So, so that really was my focus. And it was interesting how I got into teaching. It was corporate training, which is really about talking and telling your story. So I'll be honest, when I went from there, my wife was a, an engineer who I met at Exxon. Um, and in the 80s, we had this thing called a career change assistance program. So we were able to sort of buy ourselves out in our, our, Mid to late 20s, and just travel the world. And we decided that teaching would be really cool. And I'll be honest, it was a real shock for me from going to the corporate world to the K to 12 world. And I really want to talk about the K to 12 world because it's like the Nike commercial. And we are talking about Portland here, Matt. It's the just do it. Um, in corporate training, and I find in higher education, you can get away with a lot. You know, you're with adults, you can talk, you can have conversations, but with young children, They want to be engaged. They want to be doing something. They want to be empowered. It's about them. So I'll be honest, it was revolutionary for me. Uh, What we ended up doing is teaching for a year in Japan, uh, coming back, getting our teacher certifications in Canada, and spending five years up in northern Canada, three years in um, the Eastern Arctic with what we call Inuit people, the Eskimos, and then a couple years in the Western Arctic with the Dene or more of our conventional indigenous people. And I'll be honest, that completely reshaped the way i thought just going from more of an individual experience um that learning is all about the community it's about you know and and matt i think this is so timely now uh we got to work together you know we got covid we got climate change it's about solving big problems together so anyway did that um then we had a couple kids up north i was able to get a leave of absence go down to the university of calgary bang 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 do a master's do one of these phd things ended up At both Mount Royal um, and the University of Calgary, so I think about the past 20 or 25 years, I've been one of those academics, but I'll be honest, what's always grounded me, Matt, is working with children, Uh, uh, and we'll talk about that later on, but that's quick my past, so I know, Matt, you can see me, um, that you may think I'm a little older, but Matt, inside, I've always been 19. And that's why I love to teach. I learn so much from the young people. Back to you. Okay.
0: Well, I can can sense that energy. Uh, And one thing that you mentioned that we're going to talk about a little bit is that individual versus community learning because I do think, especially in the blended learning space, that it is is misunderstood um, the role of collaborative learning, Uh, but we will get to that later. So I want to start by spending a bit of time discussing the state of blended learning. School closures as a result of COVID have seemingly accelerated the adoption of blended learning practices, and I would love to hear what you're seeing in your work, what's changed in the last 12 months, but Before that, I think we need to define blended learning, and I'd love for you as much as possible to put a stake in the ground and establish some concrete boundaries, because in the PK-20 space, we have blended learning, personalized learning, hybrid learning, project-based learning, these are, uh, all in some forms buzzwords. A uh, podcaster I listened to would reference Marvin Minsky, the cognitive and computer scientist, and refer to these as suitcase words, meaning you can stuff whatever you want into that suitcase. So you ask 10 different practitioners to define blended learning, you might get 10 different definitions. So from your perspective, what is it? And maybe more importantly, what is it not?
1: So, so, Matt, I'll, I'll back up about this because you just started. I mean, we could go into flip classrooms, high flex learning, anything. The problem I find, Matt, with all these definitions, we can't see the forest through the trees. So I'll be honest, I do this every semester. I often teach three sections it's an ed tech class, three different groups of people. Matt, that's the way I always start my class is we engage in a conversation. What does blended learning mean to you? And Matt, I will get to my definition in a minute, but my experience, especially junior high is my little forte. Uh, It goes in one ear, goes out the out. Like it is, you know, you've got to engage them. I've got to hear their voices and what they say. And it's fascinating. Three groups, three different things, but the big thing for me, it's about learning. And I know this is going to sound trait, but it's the idea that learning happens everywhere all the time. And I've got two, they're not young anymore, Matt, my two boys are 25 and 27, but they always equated learning with being in a classroom. Once they were out of a classroom, for some reason, they didn't think learning happened anymore. So Matt, people have teased me. I know, Matt, you see me. I don't have hair. I'm gray. But people send me those YouTube videos, Blended Learning 1.0, the introduction of the book. And Matt, I've seen, I think I'll send it to you. You've seen It's really cute. You know, you've got a technician showing how to open the book. So Blended Learning for me is the idea that we're learning everywhere. And so for me, it really is the integration of Informal and formal learning—that's what I'm going to go. There's all kinds of other stuff, Matt. We can talk about technology in and out of classroom, but it's the idea uh, of making people conscious of learning all the time. And, and Matt, I'm going to go off script a little bit because we are going to talk about the community of inquiry framework. And somebody told me there's even what someone beyond John Dewey, but but Randy Garrison, who really is um, the fella who's behind the community of inquiry. Uh, framework really was a scholar of John Dewey's work. Um and, and I'm sure your your readers, your, your audience may be a little familiar with him, but let's just talk a little bit about what when John Dewey wrote and what he wrote. So Two of his seminal books, one book was Democracy and Education. It was written during the First World War, which I'll be honest, a little bit of a crisis there. The other seminal book was How People Think. It was written during the Depression, 1938. I think this is so important because it's the idea... Of, of really being conscious of what's going on in the world. And I mean all the time, not in the classroom, out the classroom. And, you know, Dewey's framework was pretty simple. You have an experience, you reflect on it, and then you do something, a three parts. And then later on, Matt, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what Randy Garrison did in building on Uh, Dewey's work with this practical inquiry framework that that came before community inquiry, but also David Kolb at Case Western University um, in Cleveland about Kolb's learning cycle. They're very similar. So uh, quickly, sorry, Matt, to go off script, but it is the integration of formal and informal learning experience. That's my definition.
0: And what are, you, what are you seeing in your work over the last 12 months? How has the landscape changed? Because you've been doing this research for years. So I'm curious what your perspective is. Are you excited about what you're seeing? So I'm excited,
1: but I'm scared. So Matt, I live in three different worlds. And I'll be honest, I'm going to talk about them really quickly. I still, whether you like it or not, you're grounded in where you start. So I still live in the corporate world. I still do work... Um Calgary after Toronto is still, even though we're losing them, it's, it's home to probably a lot of head offices, not just for the petroleum industry, uh, for transportation, the Canadian Pacific uh, Railway, also for a number of our banks. So I still work with them. So I'm going to talk about the corporate world in a minute, what I'm observing, what I'm observing in higher ed, and then my love is still in K to 12. So what I'm observing first, because that's what I'm paid to do, is I'm at a university, I'm a little discouraged with what I'm seeing. And I think this is often a trend. Um, most people in higher ed are, are wonderful people. They, they, they love to interact, to work with others. Um, But let's be honest, they're subject matter. They're disciplinary experts. Um, They develop an extreme amount of expertise in conducting research in very specific areas, Um, physics, uh, chemistry, those areas. Some of them are wonderful. They branch out and they really want to learn about learning theory, Matt. But most of my experience is they become content producers. Again, I'll be honest, you've read mine, I put out a lot of books. So when we went to whatever we wanna call this, remote teaching, pandemic teaching, it was a little scary for me. Rather than focusing on how to engage students um, in this this online, this remote area, they started creating content like the Flip classroom, like going to the, nothing against Saul the Khan Academy, but come on guys, we need more than videos. Which was exciting for me, Matt, to see what happened in the K-12 to world. And I've got my son, my youngest son, it's his first year teaching. And it was so exciting for me because, again, I think it's about 12% of our schools in the province of Alberta have COVID outbreaks. So every couple of weeks, they still have to go online. He doesn't go for content he focuses on engaging ways of students really focuses on the activity assignments so I've been excited to see what's going on in the k-12 world because they're doing what I want to see they're getting kids excited passionate empowering them where I'll be honest I've been a little discouraged about the the higher ed world because um, it's been focused on more content creation And, and they're still at that stage we'll talk about it later on Matt not just individualization it's the passive learning it's the idea of them being the experts and you know just passively passing us on. Quickly before we get to the next one, it's exciting. It's scary for me. I'm still really involved in the corporate world. Matt. All I want to tell you is do not get involved in corporate real estate. Matt, it's never changing. I know, Matt, we want to go back to offices. Uh, I see it happening. Okay, well, you can shut me up in a minute. But the corporate world was ahead of us already with this. This is an incredible way for them to reduce costs. And Matt, if you ever want to go to some incredible Zoom sessions or whatever, the corporate world has this down to a T. Just quickly, in Calgary, we've got, just like in um You know, probably Denver, Colorado, uh, Dallas, Texas. We've got oil operations all over the world. They've been doing this for years. This wasn't a big deal for them, and they can do this really successfully. They really collaborate online. Okay, back to you, Matt.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, all I got to say as a as a personal aside, uh, along the lines of the uh, the corporate real estate comment, is I'm up in Portland, and we're looking to to buy a home. And a lot of folks, it seems like from California, are moving up here, so. You know, take a little bit more time down there and give us some space to uh, to buy a home on a teacher salary. We'd uh, we'd appreciate that. So, so we'll get back to your question, but it is funny because again, I've got one
1: sister just outside of San Francisco, another one in Boulder, Colorado. Apparently. Idaho is booming. Everybody is moving to Idaho and and real estate is shot through the roof. Same with Wyoming. Okay, Matt, we got to focus. Your job is to focus me.
0: There was a a recent article about the purchasing power of folks coming from California being, I don't know, 75% higher than the, the, the folks who live there. So anyways, that was a nice little, little tangent. Um so I want to spend a bit of time discussing well actually no before that you had mentioned something and I want to make a distinction between content and I don't know if engagement is the right word but content and process because that's something that I want to get to later but you did reference it in your last response talking about your son uh, and his experience uh, versus the experience of his experiences of what you're seeing in the higher ed space, so can you just talk a little bit about that that distinction? Because I think it is is critical. And again, we're going to get to it in a little bit more depth later. But um, why don't we why don't we go there? Matt, you're you're so
1: right on it. And again, we'll get to that later on because that really is the focus of the community acquire. It's a process. It's a development metal model. But Matt, this is really important because I still do a little. I don't know if we want to call it professional learning, professional development. And it's really difficult, from my perspective, working with folks in higher ed. um, You know, course outlines, they're not bad at putting together, at least for the outcomes. They understand Bloom's taxonomy. They can create great verbs. But when you look at their course outline, Matt, usually it looks like the table of content for a book. These are the topics, these are the modules, and they sort of throw in... You know, an outcome, but they really don't align it. Like, how are you going to give feedback to students? How are you going to help them grow and develop in this area? So, my experience, it really is a content focus. You know, they just want to throw stuff at students and see how it sticks. Now, Matt, we're going to get on this a little later on, but this is interesting because I think this is filtering through in the States, and you're going to have to correct me on this, but. I think things are changing with your student achievement test, the SAT. So what happens here in Alberta, um, we've adopted a lot of your frameworks from the states and and um, sort of standardized testing is huge in K to 12. We rank schools and everything. So quickly, Matt, the way it works, because this will get to process in a minute, is... Um, we have a K to 12 system like you, but we divide it up into four divisions. So, division one is K to three, division two is four to six, division three is junior high, seven to nine, and high schools, 10 to 12. We do this, we do standardized testing at the end of each of those. So, in grade three, at the end of grade three, the end of grade six, the end of grade nine, and then the end of grade 12 are the big high stake ones to get into colleges and universities again whether we like it or not we have the most amazing k-12 teachers in our province uh, but they're forced to teach the test um, we've got an interesting institute i won't mention where they lean but you can probably game it it's called the fraser institute they publish the results of the standardized tests on the front page of the calgary and the edmonton newspapers those are our two big cities in this and so you know parents you know, they, that's what they think quality of education is, is how their kids do on standardized tests. Um, so it's like a voucher system in the States. They, they go where the test taking's the highest and there's all kinds of gaming. What's been exciting for me, again, this is my uh, child's, he's not a child, he's 25, first year teaching. He's teaching grade 12 English. It's been a revolution for the children and the parents. No longer does he have to teach to the diploma, the grade 12 test. So process, the outcomes are the same. They're looking at novel studies. They're looking at character development. They're looking at writing essay plot. But guess what? For the first time ever, the kids have choice. I'm not downplaying Hamlet and the power of Ophelia, but no longer does every person have to read the same novel they can choose the novel the same thing they're doing the same thing you know uh looking at it looking at the character development but it's empowering he's had comments because again that's the other thing that's been interesting with all this remote stuff is he's working with parents now not on issues around you know behavior or whatever Parents have become an integral part of the child's learning. And this goes back to my definition of formal, informal. Parents really understand what's going on. This has been one of the positive things about remote teaching in K to 12. They're involved. They see what's going on and the process. And for the first time ever, again, it's his first year, but the principal's going, man, this, my son's doing okay, because getting comments about, my God, my kid loves to read. My kid is excited. We, we've got all these novels. So that's what I want to talk about process versus content. And, and I'll be honest, K to 12 teachers get it intuitively, because that the, that's the way their professional development. They've all got professional certifications that are around, again, process, they understand learning.
0: There's a, there's a movie, I don't know if it's from the 90s, I think it's from the 2000s called Accepted. Um, kind of a silly movie, but it it. It uh, it gets to a lot of what you just alluded to is this idea of choice. Uh, there, it's higher education. But one thing that I've talked about, not sure if I've talked about it on this podcast, but you know, I've thought a lot about if I were to start a high school on my own. You know, what what, what exactly would students do? And I like thinking about the topic of the Vietnam War. And if I'm teaching a class on the Vietnam War and I want to engage my students, do I pick out five texts for everybody to read, or do I say, what do you want to learn about? Do you want to learn about sports? Great. I can give you these books on sports during the Vietnam War, and maybe you can learn about peaceful protests. Uh, You can learn about Muhammad Ali and the impact that his protest had on his career. You want to learn about music? Awesome. Amazing time in music. Um, If you want to learn about uh, peaceful protests, Uh, We can talk about that. If you want to learn about military tactics, you can learn about that. If you want to learn about the culture of the Vietnamese people and the Laotian people as well, you can learn about that. And it creates this initial interest and engagement that you got to think that if kids start reading texts that they want to read, eventually they're probably going to engage in the text that you might want them to read in the first place because, okay, I learn about music. Now uh, I want to learn about peaceful protests. I learned about peaceful protests. What was the role of sports in that? How did the government respond to that? Uh, there are just so many other things to build more of a holistic picture, but you want to engage students' interests first rather than just say, these are the texts that you feel like you need to read.
1: I know Mark Zuckerberg said uh, he had to move from the Cambridge-Boston area out to Silicon Valley because that's where all the creativity happens. But I want to tell you that there still is amazing happening in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And I'm going to mention one name, one organization, and how they define engagement. It's Dennis Litke. You probably have heard of him, bigpicture.org. Uh, When Obama was your president, I think he was the only one who served on both terms of Obama's national education advising. He runs an organization called bigpicture.org. So it's starting with the student. The way he defines engagement is the three R's. Relevance. Kids have to feel curious and connected to their learning. The second one is relationships, that they do it with community and collaboration. And the last one is there's a sense of rigor, a challenge that students are accomplishing solving big problems. You just opened uh, first Canadian school in Winnipeg for our indigenous people. I think that we're gonna see changes because I don't think we can put the genie back in the bottle. We have started to empower young people And I don't think we're going to be able to shut them down.
0: I did have a question on the three R's. So maybe why don't we just go there real quick and then we can get to the role of technology because we have been talking about blended learning, but we haven't touched upon technology. And obviously technology plays a critical role in in the blended learning environment. But can you talk a little bit more about the three R's and why they're foundational to the design of an online learning environment? So again... I'm one of those mashup people.
1: I've never had an original idea in my life, but but I like just, I love learning. I'm gonna learn, I'm learning so much from you. I just love learning about different people and putting it together. So we've got those three R's, okay? And then we've got this really cool guy, Randy Garrison, who's come up with this community of inquiry framework. And I'll be honest, um, the first time I met Randy, he was the director of the Teaching and Learning Center at the University of Calgary, Where I was a professor. And so I was teaching a graduate class, um, you know, on online. Believe it or not, the class was online and blended learning. And I figured, you know, I'm hearing a lot about this committee of inquiry framework. Let's bring this guy in and hear about it. But I'll be honest, the first time it overwhelmed me. Randy's background, um, he, he, started off as a k-12 teacher outdoor high school physics teacher he loves venn diagrams and venn diagrams work really well it's called the holy trinity when you can put three of them together and, and he won't go for more than three people have tried to jam in you know emotional presence so his big thing is about thinking so cognitive you know the idea of cognitive presence and he's got a really cool framework there it's based on dewey's work you know And it's based, I'll go back to those three R's, but it's based on kids and and anybody finding a question. He calls it a triggering event Mm -hmm. and the triggering starts the inquiry. So it starts with triggering um, and then we want to explore and we want to explore both sides of the problem, you know, really understand, agree to disagree. And then we want to kick the tires, you know, the integration. And finally, hopefully if it's worthwhile, um, we resolve the problem, we apply it or it goes to an upward inquiry. One question leads to another, but we're always moving forward. So we've got that part. Then what happens is he worked with some guys who decided, you know, this doesn't happen on its own. It happens by listening and talking to others. So there's a social component. And he worked with a really cool guy, Walter Archer, who was his associate dean. Randy was the dean of continuing ed at University of Alberta in Edmonton. Walter was his associate dean. I love Walter. That's why Canadians are such great comedians. Think about uh, Seth Meyers, think about Mike Myers. think about John, all those guys. He's got a great term, pathological politeness. And that's what we are like in Canadians. Unless you put a hockey stick, then we'll get it. But it's the idea we have to get people to engage in a constructive decision to listen, to listen, to understand where these different things, and again, this is so important the States, but what Randy and Walter always emphasize, these are learning spaces. There is a social component, but this isn't going down the road with Twitter, and this is so important about learning how people can use Twitter in a constructive way, not a way to bash each other. Last but not least, and this is gonna get at your question, and this is my little baby, is this idea of teaching presence. And we're going to stay on this one for a while because this is my baby. So it's teaching presence. It's not teacher presence. In a community, if we're going to empower everybody, everybody's got skin in the game. So the fellow who was really behind the teaching presence construct was always Randy Garrison's favorite doctoral student. His name was Terry Anderson. He's just retired. He became our first federal chair, our first guru of distance or online learning for our entire country in Canada. Terry's an interesting guy. part of his life, homesteaded uh, in the northern part of our province, you know, went off grid, you know, sort of like folks do in Oregon and Washington State, um, chopped wood, you know, solar panel, the whole bit. And then what he did in the 80s, created a really nice, really cool organization in the northern part of Ontario, which is where most of our people live, um, working with Indigenous people, how we can empower Indigenous people. And he really studied Indigenous ways of knowing. And it's this collaboration um you know, it really is about survival so i took randy i took terry's work with teaching presence and i took dennis's work with the three r's and are you ready for this matt this this is my only little contribution and again i just put things together other people got it so terry looked at the way you know he did sort of one of those meta analyses. um in the 90s and it was back then you know the web was it's an in infancy but the the internet had been wild around for a while and we used to call it cmc computer mediated communication so he looked at a couple really cool people a couple guys that were doing really amazing work in the states Morten polson was doing some really cool in norway and he looked like you know what are the key roles for a teacher in this online environment And as he looked at it, it really came down to three roles. Um, The first one was that, you know, you, you got to design, you got to have a bit of a plan, but the plan's got to be flexible based on the needs of your learners. So they called that design and organization. And then the second thing they discovered is this facilitation. And what's really important is facilitation is not about being on a guide and a side, but kids are looking for us. The most important thing I can say for anybody, if you want to learn how to teach online, take a course, be a student, not online learning, you know, do anything with Coursera. I can't even remember all these terms. But they're lucky us. So facilitation is really modeling the learning behaviors, you know, not shying away for the difficult questions, really helping people. That's what facilitation is all about, is the modeling. And then the last thing is we come with expertise, but our expertise is not to smother people. It's this idea of direct instruction. And there's a really cool guy out of Harvard, Cass Sestine, and I forget his wife. She was the UN ambassador under um, Obama. Really cool couple. Cass talked about the nudge factor, and that's what direct instruction is, is pushing people out of the comfort zone. Now, remember way back when you probably learned it if you did a teacher ed course, there was a cool guy, uh, this this Piaget guy, pretty cool guy, studied his his granddaughter, and he came up with this this word of, of cognitive dissonance, pushing people out of their comfort zone, And then it's accommodation and assimilation. And I think Kurt, Kurt was it Colorado, whatever, Kurt Lewin, you know, he was the father of Outward Bound. And that's what Outward Bound's based on push people out of their comfort zone and they'll accommodate. So what happens with the teaching presence construct? We've got these three components that that are always working together, the design and the organization, the facilitation, direct instruction. Then we go over and look at Dennis's work. Hey, Dennis has got three things happening as well. Isn't it cool? Relevance relationships and rigor so Matt that paper I sent you that I just published with a really good friend of mine in the fall what we did we just put those three things together that's all I do I don't get anything extra so what we looked at okay design and and organization but what's so important is doing it in partnership with our students if we want to have courses that are really relevant that, that really you know connect to to students prior learning or what they want to learn uh, and the connections the design and organization is all about relevance like we got to find out we got to prime the pump you know doing some basic things like you know what prior experience to have coming into this course setting some goals so, so that's 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 what we've done okay with that that's been my real focus is the design and the organization but what's really important is it, it doesn't just happen at the front end it tweaks it all the way through because we're going to talk about that. You know, we talk about icebreakers You know, all this love and stuff. Oh, just a little aside, I'll throw. it We'll talk about later. But you may have heard of this dude, Stephen Brookfield. He's considered to be the godfather of adult ed.
0: He's in Minnesota. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that yeah. was Randy Garrison's doctoral supervisor. I don't know if you know that, but Stephen was initially. They're not mentors, and I'll go on about. But but there's that. But 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 quickly, just getting to facilitation. This is about working together. My experience, kids learn how to do that in kindergarten. Then we spend 12 years on doing it. It's all individualization. So when they come to me in first year, and I always teach first year courses, the big thing is how do we learn to work together? My dad taught leadership courses in the 60s. Really cool dude, Bruce Tuckman, five stages of group development, forming, storming, norming, performing, and then adjourning. We do that. Low-stakes activity, but I spend a lot of time helping students learn to work together. And that's what facilitation is all about. If we're going to get collaboration, they have to learn together. And then the last thing is the rigor. Real-life problems, like you talked Vietnam. This is where the direction comes in. And this is where my definition of informal and formal learning is, is big problems. Like your stream is is up the creek. Like, look at the crap in the stream. Let's let's work on it with little kids. All that. So my focus has really become around teaching presence and the three elements.
0: Yeah, I mean, so much to respond to there. I appreciate yeah. the uh, the mashup comment, and I'm a big fan of uh, Thomas Kuhn's work. And I think he would say that uh, few people have original ideas. That yep. it's all all a mashup. Uh, I did want to talk about tech, but I think we can put a pin in that. And I don't think there's a problem there because as we are alluding to blended learning is not about the technology. It's about the learning and the technology is a tool to support learning processes. Matt, I'm going to inter- interrupt because it is learning, but it's empowering.
1: It, yep. it, it's it's the learning empowers people. And, and this is so important because the engagement learns to empowerment. And when kids, kids, when anybody in the world feels good about themselves, then they'll take risks and help other people. And technology is is overwhelming me right now, but it has always overwhelmed us as humans. Like we go back, I think techni is the Greek root for ways of tools to empower humans. And think about it once we discovered we could make fire, we'd have to work for for, uh, an electric storm. Fire was so important. It could either warm our house or it could burn us down. Technology is, is overwhelming right now. And and I'm going to be careful. I'm not, I'm not part of the QAnon conspiracy. Okay. Okay. But listen, I I see the power of artificial intelligence but what are we going to do with all these young males if people on the west coast have all these self-driving vehicles we're going to have so many people out of work and i'll be honest i talk like like i get amazon packages every day i love talking to my ups driver i love love talking to my fedex with technology we have to realize about humanism and this has been the problem like learning management systems have a place but most of our students in higher ed don't use these once they leave it. So, what I love back to mashups, they are so excited when they can demonstrate tools to me that I've never heard of. And I know some of these tools. I think in the States, we call it FERPA. In the States, we call it FOIP, Freedom of Information and Privacy. We got Patriot. But again, I'm so excited when tools can empower people, even little people. So, I just, I, I, I just, technology. Is important, and we always say, "Oh, you know, we got the outcomes, and then you know the activities, them engagement, you know, technology is down there, the tools, but just what's happening with technology?" I, I'm hoping for the forces of good.
0: I I hear you. I am overwhelmed by technology on a, on a daily basis, and. You mentioned cognitive dissonance. I feel like for the last 12 months, I'm living in a perpetual state of cognitive dissonance. I'm trying to get out of it. I'm in this little like cognitive dissonance bubble, but, uh, and the tech is a big part of it.
1: It is, Matt, but, but I work with some really cool, sc- like it is really neat. It, it's just, we're like, they are public, but we're the only state or province in Canada that, that charter schools are legally allowed in Canada. It's, it's in Alberta, but they're public. But what I love is I, these people are like 21 or 22. These teachers are amazing because rather than like, you know, hiding the Playboy books in your in, in your closet from your kids, it's all about digital citizenship. Mm-hmm. Getting the little people to understand about their footprints, let's empower them. Let's not mm-hmm. scare them, but they understand. Like Matt, these little kids are onto it. They know what cyber bullying is, they know everything. So rather than just saying, oh, you're too young to do this, Let's wake them up. Let's make them digital activists. Okay, back to you, Matt. <laughs> okay. well,
0: yeah, and I, I do want to get to teaching presence because there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I am a former elementary school teacher, and anybody who says you can't have those deep conversations with third graders just hasn't hasn't tried it, so I totally, totally agree with you there. So teaching presence, um, so you have a quote uh, from your 2013 book. You write that there is the quote, active presence of a teacher at its core, working toward active cognitive and social presence of all the participants, end quote. So in my experience, a lot of blended learning advocates often do not highlight the role of the teacher in the learning process. It's often instead framed as a personalized approach to learning. And yet, like you have already talked a lot about this, the teacher playing a central role. Now, this has multiple layers um, and there's a quote that appears frequently in your papers and presentations to teach is to learn twice and you reference the Maori concept of ako. so can you discuss uh the role of the teacher in establishing a teaching presence talk about student as teacher as well and then the concept of ako language is so important a- and I've learned I so I- much lang- languages ide- language is ideology
1: it is but but randy when I became, he was my sensei. When I became a doctoral student, he hammered me. If you ever mention student-centered learning to him, he will go ballistic. His whole idea, and this comes from Dewey, these are learning-centered environment. If we're in a community, everybody's got a skin in the game. That's why I still love, you know, and it's been a bummer with COVID because I'll be honest, I love supervising practicums and placements we're all learning together and that's why i love teaching i'm learning i hate to say it but you see it there's so many cool examples in oregon engaged teaching equals engaged learning we can all go back into time you know why we became teachers or whatever it's because we all had teachers that were turned on and why were those people those women and men they were learning. They were excited. They were learning in partnership with us. And that that's why it's so exciting. It's really weird. Just my little neighborhood. And this gets to teaching presence. Honestly, I'm learning from them. I'm pretending that I'm a researcher, but my little neighborhood, I live a hundred feet, not a hundred feet, a thousand feet from the Sutina First Nation. It's one of the largest First Nations in our country. I have graduates in my program who are Indigenous teaching there. I've got them. Then I've got this Connect Charter, this charter school 100 feet with them, partners in place. They're working together. Then I've got the Calgary Girls' School, another charter school over there. Then I've got a public school over here and a Catholic school. It is so cool. And what it's so cool is when they start working with each other and the students, again, that's where I think the technology has empowered us. What's really cool, though, I'm going to get off topic for a minute, though, is we've got its, um we're in the middle of nowhere. I, I, I'm an ocean person, but we have this thing called a reservoir. We pretend it's a lake, but it's our drinking reservoir. And it does have a natural area and half of it's on the First Nation. So we can physically get the kids down there together. And, and, and these are kids that with Parents who have really interesting ideologies. Sir, so you, you think about Texas, Alberta. We can be even farther to the right. But it is so cool when you get little people. These are indigenous people with 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 people I don't want to talk about what color these people are but a lot of them are very white you get the little kids together and talking they get excited they learn from each other they feel empowered they learn about the metis wheel courage of circle they learn about uh different settler things about you know their eastern orthodox religions it's really cool so i sorry i'm so long-winded but i got hammered on it it's Learning-centered environment. If we are a true community of inquiry, we're all inquiring together. You never got bored because, I mean, you know, the process, back to your idea of process learning, the process is – but times change. You go – Wow, I think this year this is going to be our focus. And just to get away because it is tough. You know that's one of the bummers with us with the <laughs> the oil the oil industry boat sinking. We're losing a lot of money, and I really give you know Chevron a lot of those companies. It was called the Chevron Opens Minds program. Just quickly, it was really cool. They gave all this money to our big public school system to create these open-mind schools. So these were year-long inquiries, but part of the inquiry, you would spend a week at the zoo in grade three, and I mean a week at the zoo. You would not just go there for the day. You'd camp out inside. You'd be with the gorillas one night. It's just so exciting. Well,
0: can can you talk a little bit about ACO? Yeah, concept. so so
1: so so ACO and what I've discovered since ACO is we have something in Canada and I can't pronounce the indigenous world, but it's called two-eyed seeing. So it's really neat, and this is where I'm really starting to move in my work, and hopefully you'll see it with the next edition of our book, is the COI and its relationship to Indigenous ways of knowing, it's really weird. The more Indigenous communities I go in, and, and these are Indigenous communities now um, in countries that were colonized by Europeans, mainly the British. So I'm going to talk about New Zealand with the Maori, Ako. I'm going to talk about Australia with the Aboriginals. And then the problem with us in Canada, we're like you in the States. You, 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 there, there's just too many different Aboriginal gr- Indigenous groups but in every one of them, it's really neat. When you look, they do not have a separate word for teach or learn. They only have one word and it's the reciprocal nature. So when you look at ACCO, I teach to learn, but I learn through my teaching. That's the Maori principle. And and in Australia, the K to 12 curriculum, they actually, and, and in higher ed, it's called Ako is all based around that principle. It, it really is cool when you start to look at the curriculum. And we're getting off topic, but New Zealand's kind of neat because it, it was colonized by the British, but the majority of the population was always always Maori, and even now I think I, I forget what the breakout, but especially on the North Island, it's it's primarily Maori people. Um, Australia was a bit like the states and Canada and I'll be careful but a lot of people were lost and and it was because of diseases It, it wasn't they weren't shot but smallpox diphtheria they had no immunity to those so a lot of them were gone it was just a terrible thing but I'm just learning recently it's called both ways of seeing seeing both the European traditions and us but it's really cool and it's really coming out in the science curriculum this idea of two-eyed seeing so it's in the corporate world wells bank wells what is it the wells fargo wells fargo bank i got a friend who's the director of training in the state out of walnut creek (laughs) that's well Wells fargo but they talk about strength-based learning and this is what it's all about and it's about empowering people so you know rather than looking at the deficits let's start looking at little people and let's start looking at our corporate employees What are they really good? So maybe somebody's got a different shit in, you know, formatting for academic writing. Let's not give up about it, but let's start at something that they're really good at and let's build that strength, build the resilience, and the rest will come in. So the ACO, both ways of seeing, the two eyes seeing, is appreciating. And I spent five years, uh, three years again with the Inuit, which would be the Eskimo people, two years with our Dane, which would be the more conventional, you know, the people that Columbus called Indians. But it, it's neat to see how they're rebuilding themselves because they were lost between two worlds. They had their traditional ways of knowing, but they could see the Western ways and they were caught in the middle. They didn't know which way to go. And it really is interesting. I'm just gonna veer off because I'm starting to work. It really is neat how my little life's coming back. But but I'm working with the government of Nunavut because what happened was sort of um, late 80s, early 90s, that's when we were up. It used to be called the Baffin Digital School Board. What was really cool in 1999, so I know in your life, it was a long time ago, but in my life, not that long ago they actually carved out a new territory in our country so we have we have all these provinces but we've got the yukon the northwest territories but nunavut is the indigenous inuit it took them a while to figure it out they became a new territory in 1999 but for about the next eight years they figured out you know what's our education going to look like they call it iq it's Inuit, and then they've got this long word I can't pronounce, but it's Inuit ways of knowing, taking the best of what they appreciate from from European, from our Western ways of knowing with their own. But what's really cool, but they're going beyond just collaborating with people. They're collaborating and respecting the land, the water, and the air. Got to go back to those, or we're going to lose them. So it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, Two-Eyed Seeing, ACO, I think it's cool. But I think what's going on in Canada, and and I've just discovered it in the past couple of months. They developed in 2007, but I'm going to show you their K-12 to framework. It will blow your socks off. They get it. They get it. Respect for it. And kids love it. Just, I'm getting off topic again, but I'm sure you might have done it, or I don't know if your wife, your partner, but the coolest thing, this time of year, you know, Easter's coming up. So not in all, but in some of our kindergarten classes, they've got out there and they've got duckling eggs. So right now we've got kindergarten classes that are watching the eggs. They're getting ready for to hatch. And then after Easter, they'll release it. They'll go back. It's either in a wetland or whatever, but it's connecting to kids to the site like our real world.
0: Are you are you familiar with Sandra Harding's work? No. Uh,
1: you've got to send it to me. This is why see we learn from each other.
0: So Sandra Harding extends a lot of what you're you're saying. Uh she uh, is not I, not at all a disciple of Thomas Kuhn, but uh sort of lives in that philosophy of science space and around um indigenous ways of knowing, uh specifically, specifically uh focused on science. Uh but um yeah, so she she is definitely something that somebody that I would recommend.
1: Well, um, you, you send that to me, and then there's a big one that's coming out from a- it's called braided sweetgrass, braided yep, yeah, vine, sweetgrass, yeah, yeah, which again, you know, from upstate New York, really cool. But, but what I'm so excited about is is this, these young people. Do you have little people? Do you have I have
0: two little ones. I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Oh, sorry, no, she's
1: three. <laughs> All I can say is make every moment count. I can't even remember when my kids are five and two-and-a-half because my kids are 25 and 26. Them. They won't let me touch them or hug them. But I didn't appreciate it until now. How much you how much you learn from your children. No, no doubt. My my kids now, they are my teachers. So quickly, one kid's in Nairobi, Kenya doing really cool stuff. And it's not like A, but he's he's a researcher in there. And the other kid, it is really interesting having your own child do what you're passionate about. He's so far beyond me. I just, what he's doing, can you believe it? Your first year as a teacher during the COVID-19 panic, he's a little like me, Matt, you're getting my, no, but it's crazy. He and I, because honestly, I can't think you're catching on. I'm a little hyper. I'm not ADD, but I'm a little hyper. Like I was really worried. How's he going to handle this? He is rocking it.
0: Yeah, that's great. We've talked a little bit about this, uh, but I do want to reference, you've referenced an old proverb, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. In the time that I have spent in my prior role with K-12 organizations, supporting them with technology integrations, my colleagues and I considered a third option, which is you teach a man to learn how to fish and he'll learn not just how to fish, but how to do lots of other things. Um, You write that blended learning done well helps students learn how to learn. And this is a a bold statement, no pun intended, Um, but it's an idealized aspiration. It's not the goal of K-12 or higher education. That goal, in my opinion, is to prepare students for the workforce. So why is this your goal? And why do you think it's important to teach students how to learn? Just
1: quickly on that. And then this is where we will start the conversation next time, because that proverb then does lead into the other one that it takes a community to raise a yeah. child because the workforce is different. The workforce is sustaining, you know, the seven generations. We want to make sure that we're sustaining this planet for your children, your little people in the next generation. And who knows, maybe that's what the workforce is all about. We're going to go on this, but, but, but again, I think people don't understand metacognition. Yeah. Content comes and goes, but but, but I am going to, provide some examples from a grade five child I've been working with. A grade five kid that was able to explain to me his mental framework. He could articulate better than I could as a 61-year-old how he learns. If if we can get kids to do that, they've got now the resiliency and the tools because too often, my experience, and we'll talk about that next interview, but it's setting kids up to feel like they can do something. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. This is this is our only hope is your two and a half year old and your five year old. And they can do it. We got a new family that just moved into me. They're behind me. They're a little older. Their kids are six or three. Unbelievable to see what those kids are doing in their backyard. Unbelievable to see what those little kids are teaching their mom and dad. But Matt, it is a big worry. You've cut off our pipeline. Apparently, you're going to do a tax because you want to control oil spills. So our budget's for post-secondary because we have a government that doesn't believe in universities. So we have to go and see if we can save our program. Have
0: a well, great we can, weekend. We can end on that happy now. Okay, take care.